Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Eat Local New York podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Tringale, and in this week's episode, my guest is Adam from Old Home Distillers. I'm thrilled to have Adam on the podcast today. I feel like over the past few years, as I've seen Adam at, at different events and at the farmer's market, I, I've said, man, I got to get you in the podcast. And I'm glad that it never happened because today I have a better understanding and appreciation for the world of local distilling and bourbons and whiskeys and spirits than I did two years ago, you know, especially with me going through, um, which I'm a big, I'm a, uh, a, a big fan of bourbon. And over the past six months, I've really developed a small collection of, uh, of bourbons. I think I started back in August, maybe just trying to starting to get into it. And I've built up a small collection and, and around Christmas time, I just started to realize how silly that was. I mean, I am a fan of bourbon. I love exploring it and being a little knowledgeable on it. And I love drinking bourbon. I'm drinking a, a, a pour of Four Roses single barrel right now. But as I was spending a lot of money on trying to find these allocated bottles, I kind of had this realization that there aren't any other areas of food and beverage in my life where I appreciate the mass-produced thing. If I'm going out for a great taco, I'm not going to go... Like, I would much rather prefer... Panchitos or Guadalajara or Carmelitas over Taco Bell. If I'm going out for a great pizza, I'm not going to call Domino's or Pizza Hut or Papa John's. If I want a great burger, I, I'd I'd much rather have a Smash Burger from across the hall cafe or Salt City Smash Burgers or Three Lives than I would McDonald's or Burger King. All right. So why is the tr- why is the same not true with bourbon? Why am I willing to spend so much more money and drive all over God's green earth to find a mass-produced allocated bottle when there's plenty of local distillers in New York State that are producing great bourbons. I just decided to put a pause on it until I could kind of dive into that world and uh, and also until I drank some of the bottles that I've purchased. But anyway, so I'm thrilled to have Adam on today and not two years ago when I had less of an appreciation for what he does. I do want to say that I am... Beyond ecstatic and thrilled that we have a brand new sponsor here on the Eat Local New York podcast, and that is Brown Carbonic. Um, I've spoken with Sean a couple times on the phone and really gotten to know uh, a little bit about what their business does. And and more importantly, you know, when you're talking to somebody, especially some like a local business owner, uh, it's really important to have that conversation with them, to hear them talk about their business and the history of it and what they offer and how that's unique. And I've had those conversations with Sean and I can say that I'm sold 100% on Brown Carbonic. Even if they weren't sponsors here on the podcast, I'm 100% sold on Brown Carbonic. They're offering everything from their own craft sodas and beverages to ice machines and dish machines and cleaning supplies and nitrogen and CO2 for your draft beer systems and breweries. I mean, if you're, listen, if you're, if you're a brewery, if you are a bar with draft beer, you need to be talking to Brown Carbonic. There are zero questions about that. We pitch so much and so heavy to support local restaurants and breweries and distilleries, but there's not really much said about the importance of supporting local in these other companies that are supplying all the restaurants. And so Brown Carbonic is a very important piece of our local diverse uh, ecosystem here in central New York when it comes to the food service world. So I highly Highly, highly encourage you to reach out to them. Again, family owned and operated for 60 years right here in central New York. I mean, you know, it just doesn't get any better than that. So 
You can reach out to Brown Carbonic. Their phone number is 315-454-3591. We're going to put links to their website and, and you know phone number and all that kind of stuff in the show notes. But make sure you reach out to them. Tell them that you heard about them here on the Local New York podcast. Well, without further ado, let's get into this week's podcast. It's my conversation with Adam from Old Home Distillers. So what do you bring? So I've got the whole kit, uh, but today uh, I've got the single malt whiskey. That's for myself, and I brought you a dram of the uh, Brothers Cut Mescal finish. So that is 104 proof. <laughs> Here we go. You ready? Yeah. All right. I did have a 90 proof earlier, so I'm warm. Got a 90 proof. See, this yeah. that's a little taster, right? It's yeah. not even a finger here for you. So this is our original Brothers mm-hmm. Cut bourbon, uh, finished an additional period of time. I think it was uh, nine months mm-hmm. in a used Oaxaca Mezcal barrel. Wow. Um, I know that uh, barrel finishing can be kind of polarizing for folks, especially yeah. if it's something that you're not necessarily attuned to anyway. And mezcal is definitely like way out there for folks, and that's what we like. We're 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 a little bit more daring, I would say. That's amazing. It's really good, and it's smoky. It's almost got you definitely notice agave, uh, but it's got kind of a uh, uh, almost peat note yeah. in the middle that gets reminiscent of scotch. It still finishes with that super uh, smoky, almost animal like sort of funkiness that that mezcal would have on yeah. the back end. And all throughout, it's still three grain bourbon. It's a high red bourbon throughout. Yeah. So that we do some uh, barrel finishing projects, basically almost always having one going all the time. Um, the the mezcal finish was our release right before Christmas, essentially. Okay. Yeah. We have a uh, we did a port finish in the past, and then we have a red zin barrel on the way. We don't mm. allocate a lot to the barrel finishing because it's just more time. It, it puts a lot of stress on the bourbon supply for us to yeah. you know to set aside sixty gallons at a time. It seems like like not a lot. But it is for us right yeah. now to leave sixty gallons untouched for a while. <laughs> but so, tell me a little bit about how you all got started and why. And pour myself. A yeah, little, please. Little, yeah, I, uh, I'm getting over uh, bronchitis here, so oh, I have dude. a small, small. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been fascinated by, like we were, we were talking a little bit. You know, when I I think that was before Christmas, right? When I saw you at the yeah. market. So, um. I started getting into spirits over the summer and just liquor in general because I was um, bar partner out at Amp Farms, which is a lot of fun. So I started to get into it more from that. Started working with Pascal's Liquors and right. then became aware of like the whole world of allocated bourbon, which I haven't been. Yeah. And fell victim to all of the let's go out there and try and hunt and find these bottles and wow, look at what I got and da 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 da, which I, is still a lot of fun, but. Thinking about, um, I don't know, it's kind of weird. Like, if you typically looked at, like, a mass-produced thing, you would say, oh, that's shitty, you know? I mean, you know, Snickers, maybe that's a bad example, but it's a mass-produced, or Hershey bars, that's a better example. Mass-produced chocolate versus sweet on chocolate or nostalgia chocolate, which is craft. So, but it's kind of opposite in this world. Like, the mass-produced bourbon, everybody runs after. It's, I mean, it is the one thing where um, 
you are frankly not always targeting your most obvious fans mm. because uh, the people who are the most concerned with lineage and allocation, they're not our people. Yeah. I mean, they can be. They definitely can be, but we have to talk them through it. Mm-hmm. If someone is saying, I just want rarity, the, the game is already fixed for them to appear. You know, whatever they're buying appears rare. Yeah. And the, and the pricing is essentially a secondary market pricing that it convinces people that what they have is worth something. It's only worth that if someone's willing to buy it. Right. And the fact that, you know, there's only 5,000 bottles exist, well, there's only 295 <laughs> of the Muscal finish, you know. Um, you're, you're essentially having to have the argument that no one else in craft has. It's a little bit I – think, I think you find some parallels when you get into like, let's say like cheese, right? Jewett's out in our area puts out a 24-year age cheddar that is incredible. And I would put it up against anything worldwide. Holy shit. And it's amazing. It's only $60 a pound, right? Hmm. That won't get the attention of a fresh out of, you know, snuck out of the bag camembert from France, <laughs> right? Because it's this sort of, it's a Eurocentric thing. It's a Euro supremacist thing, the, mm-hmm. that, that world. Um, even though uh, it's something that you can't find anywhere. And they downplay it. You know, they say, oh, we got this thing, you know, and it's whatever. And we're kind of falling into that same niche where people are mm-hmm. saying, I want the thing that I hear people talk about. I don't want to miss out. I want the thing that I hear about all the time. I want the Weller. I want the, you know, uh, the, the, the Blantons, whether they want it or not, you yeah. know, because it's not available. And if they don't like it, they've already cracked the bottle. Yeah. And then mm. it becomes sort of a buyer's remorse scenario as well. For sure. So what we're trying to sell people is, is you know, the local story. You know, this is not – everything you get at that level is macro. Yeah. Across the board, it is all macro. You kid yourself if you think it's truly that rare. It's just spread wide. And if they can't spread it wide enough to trick you that it's rare, they'll send it overseas. Mm. So a lot of whiskey left for India, left for China. Uh, that then allowed bigger producers to create a domestic shortage. Mm. The shorter the supplies are, the more you can command in terms of uh, your retail arrangements and, and allocated bottles. And it becomes a little bit of, again, like the fixed race at that point. Mm. Now – we don't say in our business that they're doing a bad job. There are some that are very good and there's some that are, very, that are exceptional in terms of the macro stuff that's out there. But not all of it is necessarily different and or better than what can be done in a small batch, handcrafted stuff. So hmm. we got into this business not necessarily to, to try and, you know, exceed those works but provide a local option Mm-hmm. Provide a, uh, essentially a hands-on option, something that people can relate to on a, on a more intimate level, and truly have something in their hands that is, is very, very rare and very limited. And that's the nice thing, you know, uh, with the New York sort of system as it's played out, is we are very much a product of our place. Mm-hmm. And when you buy our stuff, when you get ourselves in a cocktail, it's it's a hundred percent New York grain. Ninety nine percent of it is coming from central New York, Mm. you know what I mean? And the barrels are coming from New York. And so you're you're looking at a greater economic message as well there too as well. Yeah. Um, Do we frankly sit around and wring our hands thinking about what Big Bourbon is doing? Absolutely not. (laughs) Never. Honestly, like discussions like this come up almost never. Really? It's just not our game. We just went into the, the Distillers Guild meeting. We're all talking about what we're doing because we're all essentially in the same game. Nobody cares what Beam is doing. 
Oh, you mean like internally in like the world of local spirits? In the world of local spirits, but also just in terms of our own operation as well, too. Yeah. We don't look at it at all. We're aware of it. Yeah. We are have to be conversational in these things. When someone comes up and they says, I like, you know, this, you know, Pappy 18. Yeah. And I got to say, well, you know, (laughs) you like bourbon. (laughs) Right. Let me get you to try some things. And sometimes you got some folks who are just, they're they're the hard case. You know, they say, you get someone like, say, I'm I'm at the regional market. Someone comes up and they go, "Um, what's your oldest bourbon? I'm not going to sell that person a thing. (laughs) They're probably not even going to sample. Because unless I say something like, Nine years. It's performative. The whole thing's performative. They're showing up to say, I know something about bourbon. Yeah. And for a lot of folks who know bourbon, in terms of their own interests, it, it begins and ends at age. Yeah. Not barrel, not grain, not, you know, high wheat, high rye, all, yeah. you know, all corn. All those things are all secondary to, uh, I know one thing and I like it old. And what we discovered huh. in this business is that age is 100% relative. Yeah. So. Do you get a lot of people that come up nowadays that are asking, like, what do you have that's like Blanton's or Buffalo or whatever the, whatever the bottle is? A little bit. You get a lot of folks who are, who are looking for like a, a general family. So like our brother's cut is a high rye bourbon. So I got to steer people towards things that, that they would otherwise know in the high rye family. Someone comes up and they're saying, oh, I only like weeded bourbons. I'm probably not going to send them towards the brother's cut. I'm actually going to recommend that they try something totally different. Hmm. I'm going to steer them towards like hmm. single malt whiskey. I'm going to steer them towards rye. Um, because I know that 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 a, that a weeded bourbon is not going to get satisfied by the brothers. I might certainly throw the Field Days. Field Days is an all corn bourbon. Um, Field Days is the mm. one we can't keep in stock. Ironically, really, the one that's younger from 100% corn <clears throat> is the one that we absolutely cannot keep up with. Huh. And it defies all sort of bourbon knowledge in terms of what people expect out of it. They say, "Oh, well, the the Brothers Cut is your premier package," and so it is. That's what we send all of our best stuff towards. Um, but price point and availability. Yeah, uh, are huge in this industry. Yeah, I switched uh, at the bar. I, we were lock one just because they're ten minutes away, and then, you know, for some reasons I won't mention on this podcast, uh, I wound up switching to field days for our bourbon. Yep. You know, we, we it's not like we had a big selection, and yep. Abbott's has a farm license, so you can't really get too much. And field days gets it done. Field yeah. days is 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 a little workhorse that. If you're making cocktails, if you're making drinks, you're day drinking, it gets it done. We do the farmer's markets, you know, through the summer, 9 in the morning. You got to have something that people can drink in the sunshine. Yeah. Right? You hit them with 108-proof, overproof bourbon, they're going to get a little gassed out for their day, right? We do the state fair. We, like, basically make our name the state fair on on field days. Mm. The Brothers Cut sells well, but that's where the person who's like, I'm a bourbon person, I'm going to send you right towards that. Mm. Um, the, The field days, though, I mean, we are... Sold out through first week of March, and then in terms of our <laughs> supply, there's it's in stores, yeah. it's in, in distributors. Um, but then that next barrel that opens is essentially already pre-sold. Wow! Talk about allocations; it's already allocated. You know, it's just it's just not uh, commanding secondary market. It's just trying to, to meet the first market. You know, as a bourbon maker, as a sp- maker of spirits, do you want your stuff to hit a secondary? Like, let's say, I yeah. kind of don't care. Really. Yeah, I mean, it, it's out there. I don't know if our stuff commands the the cachet yet. I know it has gone to the secondary market. Hmm. I know that there are certain things that have popped up in bourbon groups and said, hey, I want to do trades, whatever. We've been in package trades before, stuff like that. Um, and I guess that's nice to say, oh, how does it rack up? Again, kind of not paying attention. Yeah, uh, It's really not good for us. 
it's kind of like reading your negative Twitter reviews or your positive, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Positive or negative. Like we like the interactions that we have with people. Yeah. I don't necessarily glean a lot of information from, you know, just scouring the internet mm-hmm. for stuff about ourselves, <laughs> you know? Uh, so like, yeah, has our, have our bottles shown up? Uh, in like bourbon trade groups, yeah, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't follow it to say, oh, what do we finally get sold for, or traded for, you know? But yeah. I'm aware of it that yeah. it's happened. But hmm. the thing with us, right? We are truly hyper local to this area. So, like, if you were in Texas, pretty much all the Texas distilleries are statewide, hmm. and they're all pretty big for the most part. There's some smaller ones. Um, in New York, we are not local statewide. Because there are so many other choices across the state. We go to Rochester and go, people go, I, you know, you're not local enough to us because we've got three options within 40, 50 <laughs> minutes of us. You know? I fucking hate that so much. And it's killing us you know, in terms of like our ability to get in other spaces because people say, well, why would I get you when you know, I'm in Buffalo? I want to, I want to carry Buffalo distilling. You know? And that's fine. You should. But you can also carry you know, a, a wider array than that. Um, it is... Um, it's interesting how limited our our circle of distribution truly is in terms of the, like you know the the core of it. Ninety nine percent of our stuff essentially selling in a certain area, but we sell everything we make. Mm. So if we go a little, if we if we expand the circle, every time that circle expands, we've got to got to pick up base a little bit, you know. Yeah. So I think it's a better sign of organic demand if we can hit a max point in a certain area and say okay. When we got 45 accounts in Syracuse or whatever it was, and 25 accounts in Binghamton and 20 accounts in Utica and 10 accounts in Henrietta and, you know, that area, that we were just basically barely keeping up, and then it's time to say, okay, how can we add a little bit on to expand the circle, make a little bit more without going crazy and, and um, you know, taking, taking on the, you know, the $3 million expansion product and then, and then uh, you know, overshooting your organic demand. Yeah. And that's everyone's kind of like scare story right now. Yeah. It's what happens when you like shoot too big. And like right now, like there are distilleries that are in the process of, of taking their first big, big scale up jump. Hmm. And it's like, I hope, I hope it's there for you. Yeah. I hope you have reason to do this because the big examples in like the beer world, they flame out pretty, yeah. pretty hard when they happen. But oh yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. The, the, the beer world is, uh, uh, you know, I've said it a lot, uh, you know, Tim and Crystal who are listening to this, you can keep your comments to yourself. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. Oh, uh, Tim and I are very good friends. I named my son after him. Uh, I didn't, but Tim likes to tell everybody sure. that I named yeah. my son Timmy. Yeah. Um, and uh, I have the opinion there's too many breweries in central New York, maybe New York State, I don't know, but in central New York, I think there's too many. I mean... I, I got to be careful talking about breweries because they are really good partners for us. Yes. Yeah. Um, they more so than a lot of other traditional accounts, uh, really support us because they know what the struggle is. Yeah. Um, so we do business with those folks and and a lot of other people in town. Is it near saturation at this point? I don't know. Yeah. I think that the cautionary tale has already happened in empire brewing. Yeah. In terms of what happens when you overshoot and you end up with overhead, that's just just out of control. And I think that was probably a very good thing for the area. I think that there have been mm-hmm. some very creative folks in brewing who have really helped introduce us as a brand to mm-hmm. whole other areas of folks who wouldn't necessarily be into it. Um, mm-hmm. 
the the breweries are a weird scene in terms of drinking scene. Yeah, and um, they're some not they're not all comfortable with the hard alcohol. Yeah, some of them are into it. Some of them are totally fine, and they 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 accept it and and do really well with the cocktail program. Other places is kind of like, well, it's not really what we focus on. Also, like, mm. this is my house. Yeah. And there's this perception that the moment you start giving people bourbon <clears throat> old fashions, like the pants fall off. <laughs> right. And then, you know, and it's, it's like, yeah, I mean, you get there on, on the beer too. Like, like yeah. it's, it's all about the setting you create right. versus, you know, what people are necessarily drinking. But we, um, hmm. I don't know that it's saturated in my mind so much as, Everyone is just sort of again hyper localized. Yeah. So if you're on the south side, you're in Jamesville, right? You're at Heritage Hill, you're in Cicero, you're at Hot House, you're a downtown person, you're at Barrett Acorn, you're around the SU, you're at Willow Rock, you're having lunch downtown, you're at Doctors. Like everyone has a little niche that fits. Yeah. I, d- I do wonder where the brand building starts. Yeah. So for us, we don't have a physical location that is truly anything more than a tasting room. We never fell into the trap of gotta have food gotta be open gotta have drinks and we would make more money up to a point having a restaurant but it's not what we wanted to do we're Mm -hmm. a production facility so as places start to kind of end up in that gray area between are we a restaurant are we a brewery are we are we canning for Wegmans or are we just filling growlers for people to take home I wonder if people get a little bit off track Mm -hmm. in that in craft beverage uh, the more that they they end up chasing the the food dollar yeah um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think, you know, the dream come true is like the small anything that exists where you can have the smallest kind of footprint and you can operate it and run it yourself and not run yourself ragged because you're there, you know, a thousand hours a week and da 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 da. I mean, I think in a lot of cases, no matter what you're doing in food and beverage, whether you're distilling or brewing or making tacos, that's sometimes can be like the best case scenario it's kind of like when you when you kind of shoot the moon i feel like you know maybe that's when it gets out of hand kind of like what you were saying with empire sure. i mean empire is an extreme example but it's extreme there are there are middle steps between where we we see certain things from a distance we say i wonder if that's what they always intended or if this is just this is what it is to get by yeah i know like we're very good friends with the folks out at hot house and they did not intend to have a bistro but the moment people started coming around, they realized this is the best thing for our business yeah. is to have a bistro. And they went full at it, and the, the folks out there really embraced it and, and made it good, mm. you know. Um, but it wasn't what they intended, yeah. you know, from from the start. That wasn't what they were, they were planning on. In our case, we knew right away that our location, so we're out in Lebanon, which is middle of nowhere. It's half yeah. Amish. Um, we knew right away that we would not be – Anything more than an agritourism destination, we just don't have the the, the proximity there to to have a venue, mm-hmm. you know, or at least like a four day a week venue. Like we could be a thing twice a summer, yeah. But that's about it, you know. Um, it's a eleven acre farm mm. out there. Uh, it's a farm we we grew up on as kids, working on uh, back when it was a horse farm. We took the original horse stable and, and gutted it out and didn't necessarily give us a lot of room beyond production. We just have a little bit of space for, for tasting. And it feels authentic. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't even say it. It is authentic. You know, It is very much a farm distillery. And for a lot of folks who come out to visit, that's the experience that they're, that they're seeking is that the tour, the hospitality, the family feel of it, whatever. What they're not necessarily looking for is like giant Jenga in, in the 
<laughs> you know, in in the <laughs> the loading dock, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, or uh, <laughs> or bubble, you know, uh, seating outside on the street, you know, yeah. it's it's just <laughs> not what we do. You know, you come out and you're welcome to hang out and be fan family and and you know have a lunch out on the picnic tables and all that. But hmm. in terms of what we're providing, uh, it's truly about the production and always has been. Do you get a lot of people that come out there for visits? We do in the summer. It's pretty good. Um, I have to say for the like maybe the last nine months to a year, it's definitely been slowing down with gas prices and things slowing down a little bit economically. Um, the trade-off, though, is that we, we were doing very well in stores. So people are aware of our stuff. They're just not necessarily you know, coming out to see us every time. They're, yeah. They are able to get in the stores. They're able to find us at farmer's markets. So they're not necessarily always making the trip. Mm. I would say that we have – started to maybe max out our exposures to a certain area. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like everyone in Kaz, Zenovia, or everyone in Hamilton at this point, or everyone in Norwich has essentially had the experience. Yeah. So we got to advertise a little bit and get people to come back or hmm. or get new people to come through. But through the summer, I mean, it's fairly busy. Yeah. Uh, and part of the, the, the bonus there um, is we don't charge for tours. We don't charge for tastings. We want people to leave with product. We want people to take a bottle with them hmm. versus – us saying, okay, well, you know, tours around at one and four, hmm. tastings are $16, but they come with a rock glass. And whatever whatever the trick it takes to get you yeah. to, to break out some money, I would much rather have someone take a, a $33 bottle with them. And if they enjoy their experience, leave a tip in the tip jar for the kids. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there's no expectations of hmm. that. And we're very honest with folks about that too as well, that, you know, we're, we're a small operator, but you're getting very, you know, unheard of access yeah. in a certain way. So how long like how long have you all been in business? When did so you first start? I had the idea I had the idea in um, summer of twenty fourteen. Hmm. Uh, I had just moved back to New York. We were in my family was in Tucson, Arizona before okay. that. Uh, I was working in the bar business. I'd gone to law school and then transitioned right into working <laughs> at a bar. It's great. Um, I worked at the um, Did you graduate law school? I did. Actually I didn't I just I didn't just graduate law school. I have uh, uh, JD and an LLM Jesus. in Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy um, from the University of Arizona, what which I did use. Thing. I did use briefly, um, but I didn't. I ended up getting tricked into. I should say I ended up working my way towards an SJD, so it's a Doctor mm. of Juridical Science. Basically, allows you to teach law, and the funding <laughs> in the middle of it kind of got pulled out. Mm. And I was like, "Well, I gotta, I gotta pay rent. Yeah, you know, I can't just be a grad student taking." Because they'll give you student loans forever. You right. just, you know, you'll die before you pay them <laughs> off. But so I ended up working in a bar that my friend was at, and I just ended up there for seven years, huh. and never got that advanced degree. The whole program kind of fell apart. It wasn't really necessarily my doing or their doing, but kind of I could say we grew apart yeah. for sure. Um, but we had, you know, th during that time we had children, and it was kind of like, where do you want to be? Tucson's nice when you're like in your twenties. Mm. It's not necessarily somewhere you want to have your family long term. Um, and we're, you know, we're from the area. We're from, you know, Lebanon originally. And mom and dad were still there. And it was kind of like, you know, if you come back, you know, you can hang out here until you figure out what you're doing. Mm. And we just basically came back, you know, with no plan. Mm. Um, applying to stuff all over the state. And I'm going down, I'm doing interviews in New York City. I was going to do interviews in Vermont. And I was like, this all is like adjacent to where we're trying to be. But if you're going to, if you actually want to be like in Madison County, it became more and more apparent. You have to make it yourself. Yeah, you have to do your own job. Essentially, you have to find your own thing. 
And when I was in the bar business, I watched Hamilton Del Bach, Whiskey Del Bach, um, come up in, in Tucson. This is one of, like an early craft distiller. Hmm. They did a Dorado single malt whiskey that was mesquite smoked. Hmm. It wasn't my favorite thing at the time, but I was also watching craft just in general change. We Like the bar was, so it was the Buffet Bar and Crockpot. It's the hmm. second oldest, like the oldest bar in Tucson, essentially. Hmm. Second oldest license, longest in one place, I hmm. think was their thing. And it was $5 pitchers of Coors, only one beer on tap. <laughs> we had Maker's Mark for three twenty-five, <laughs> And it was like, there was, a, there was a bribe going for back decades on how many, you know, cases we could <laughs> achieve during yeah. at that price. So it was a beer and shot bar. Yeah. And with the exception of a couple of nicer tequilas, we had nothing else. Huh. You know, we had, we had you know, all the flavored vodkas and it was, a, it was a college dive. It was truly like dive of all dives. Yeah. And all of a sudden people came in and they were like, you have craft beer and we're like we don't even know what that is <laughs> i don't i'm looking around i'm like i got i got a blue moon yeah <laughs> right? i don't know does that count and and suddenly people are coming in and saying uh can you make me um you know can you make me a sazerac hmm. and i was like what color is it <laughs> 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 i'll just fake it what yeah. does it take and all of a sudden everything was changing around us huh. so it was like 20 or 2008 2010 in hmm. there it was like you had to have Hendrix. That was like the first step. If you had Hendrix, <laughs> at the very least, you could supply everyone at least something that made them feel slightly less gross, right? <laughs> and at the same time, like people were willing to spend more. They didn't want five dollar yeah. pictures. They wanted they wanted options. Hmm. It became very clear that like as millennials at that time were getting older in their drinking years, they wanted all the options. Hmm. And they pass that on as well to generationally. That's that's even more so. Now everyone wants every possible option. Hmm. So we had sort of the premise in mind, like, okay, what if we I know spirits from the bar business. This was a truly a, a whiskey bar, you know, and had no interest in doing beer. Um, what if we took a, you know, just a quick look through the licensing for New York? And at that time New York was the be all end all best in the country hmm. for getting started as a distillery in terms of the laws and, yeah. and breweries and too, um, and wineries, the, the farm, uh, and craft act stuff was huge at that time. My brother at that time was in New Zealand running a restaurant on the South Island in New Zealand. Um, <laughs> he had agreed to go and do five years running it for his father-in-law. Um, he was in six years at that point. He was beyond his contractual obligations at that point. He had had, uh, a son at that point, his wife and, and he had had a son, and they were looking to come back as well. Pitched it to them that summer. We came back, looked over the property, and said, you know, if we, you know, put some capital towards this, at the very least, we get a house on it, get a farm on it. Hmm. But if it really gets licensed, this could be something really interesting. Pitched mom and dad on being the free help and the babysitters and everything, and just ran at it. Like we we put an offer on the property in September of 2014. I think we were closed by. Like maybe October, late maybe November of 2014. I started the licensing December 31st of 2014. We got our our federal license back in like record time at that point. Mm. Having a lot of helped a little bit, um, but we we essentially got our license within I think it was like four to five months. It was impossible mm. to get in that quick. And then we got our state within a few months after that. Um, we did a whole renovation on the barns. Um, totally tore everything apart. And and you know rebuilt it as a, as an industrial facility. Uh, my brother got working on um, early recipes during that time. Had either one of you ever distilled before then? No. In terms of like <laughs> like sitting down and doing a run all the way through, 
Aaron had the advantage of being in um, uh, New Zealand where home distilling was legal. Mm. So he had friends who had equipment. He knew people who were making honey-based spirits out there. He had ex- more exposure to it. Mm. Um, I knew moonshiners that went out in the desert and made bacanora and all this <laughs> gross corn liquor and, and had, the, uh, had the awareness of it, had the, had the chemistry awareness of it, knew how it worked, but didn't know necessarily on a commercial level how does it scale. Um, during that time, we took some classes, like that, that 2015 period. We took some classes. We went out to Black Button. We went to Catskill Distilling. Um, we went out to uh, Glen Rose out in North Rose. Um, everyone was very friendly in terms of like, you know, this is what it takes. Nobody led you astray yeah. in terms of what it would take. What we quickly realized was we were never going to get like German Christian Carl stills. We were never going to get million dollar, dollar equipment. Um, we also realized that we were in a very good position being in Lebanon in terms of like code enforcement and zoning and everything. We didn't have to deal with uh, being on municipal water or municipal sewer or anything. You know what I mean? There was, there was a lot less bureaucracy that we were going to have to deal with. It was kind of intentionally that we knew we were going to work our way that way. Hmm. But now it's been it's been quite a benefit. Um, it's still heavily regulated. Yeah. It's just I don't have to, to you know, <laughs> worry about uh, a, a uh, sewer inspector yeah. coming in. You know what I mean? Saying, where does all this go? Um, <laughs> it's compost. Um, but it, it's been... Um, it's been interesting um, how quickly we got to production and then essentially taught ourselves to rest along the way. Mm. You know? So we were selling by December of 2015. So mm. within less than a year, we, were, we, had, we had product out. We had corn whiskey, right? Mm. On age, hunter proof, but we had to get some income going. And we said, all right, if we get some income going, at the very least we can um, start to build a brand over time, let it, let it start to, to build up. Um, my brother was tapping trees that winter um, doing a syrup project. We took that syrup and put it towards our maple whiskey. Mm. First batch of that, huge success. Um, I did up a kind of a, a basic gin recipe, took a shot at it, tweaked it a little bit, ran it out. That's been our, literally been our gin recipe ever since, mm. just based on playing chef for mm. a couple of, you know, a couple of R&D periods. Um, we had apples on the property. Uh, my brother and mom and dad sat there and, pressed all those cider apples to make, I think, 56 bottles of unaged apple brandy the mm. first year. You know, as an O to V, Applejack, and, you know, whatever it took to, to get it out there. And I think that also really set the tone for people that it is going to be farm-based. It mm. is going to be small batch. It's very local and it's very family-oriented, mm. you know. Um, and then everything in the barrel was going on at the same time, you know, trying to, you know, figure out, What's your, bur- what's your bourbon recipe going to be? You know, there's an expectation that you're going to do a bourbon. We wanted to do a bourbon. Mm. Um, it's always been in the plan. The Brothers Cut was essentially that was always in the plan. The surprise was Field Days, being the all-corn, uh, was kind of like a what-if mm. product that then turned into like, a, I guess we'll make this all the time too. Mm. Um, single malt was always in the plan in terms of like the ease of using barley, in terms of not, not necessarily the ease of processing and mashing barley, but it's grown here. Yeah. And it's a New York product for us. Likewise for rye, uh, we were always going to make a rye. The big issue early on was our, our equipment was not able to process mm-hmm. rye well. Our, our, our rye is electric mayhem rye whiskey yeah. because we almost destroyed an electric still uh, the first time. <laughs> our, our very first stills were all electric, and they have electric elements that are right in there with them, and rye is very gummy. <clears throat> it's very sticky. 
and it caused charring all over the elements. And we just kept doing it anyway and just beating our heads against the wall. <laughs> I mean, we did a lot of things that other people would have never done in terms of like, <clears throat> you know, straining grain out of mashes or <clears throat> cooking over propane and, in, in, you know, doing corn pots, with, you know, stirring by hand and literally doing all the old <clears throat> moonshining techniques. Yeah. Um, but taking them as basically just the first step towards commercial viability. And yeah. now it's, 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 it's far more automated. It's still like two guys slinging liquids around and making a mess. But, you know, I was covered in, in corn wash this morning. You know, I took a shower before I came, but otherwise it would have smelled like a barn. And it's part of the deal. Is it just the two of you? I mean, it I is, know the parents and everybody, but is it just the two of you really? It is, it's the two of us right now. We've had some folks in and out. Uh, we have some selling folks. We've had some production folks. Right now, though, it's the lean times in terms of winter, and it really is just a two-person operation. And we've got it kind of fine-tuned to where – um, certain days can be a one-person yeah. operation, which then allows, like, my brother to go out and hit the road. He does primarily most of our selling. So right now, like, we might both work together on a Tuesday. Wednesday, he might split the day and do some road work. Thursday, he's going to do road work. Friday, we'll see. It's kind of like market prep at that point as well, too. Uh, Fridays, often we have tastings. But where it's, frankly, the two of us are almost always, with the exception of Tuesday, in two different places. Mm. Uh, so, like, for today, right, yeah, yeah. it takes a lot to get us in the same room. You know what I mean? Yeah. In terms of like, it's not that you don't write here, but it's like we lose a day. Right. If we both are in the same place somewhere, we lose a production day. Huh, that's and yeah, yeah, an appointment as well too. But there was it worked out to where, you know, we can't lose even one huh. distillation day yeah. at this point. Let me try the malt. Oh yeah. Um, did when you were first getting started, you know, like one of the big things today, especially amongst like some of the bigger. The, I should say the bigger ones that are new, the newer bigger ones, yeah. is that they're buying their juice from what is it? Uh, yeah, MGP is the MGP, big one. MGP, thank you. Oh, there's a bunch now. There's a ton. Was that ever like kind of a consideration when you were first starting? It's is never. It's literally never been a consideration, hmm. and it's probably not to our benefit um, in terms of the uh, the the ability to provide more for yeah. people. Um, it's not bad, huh? No, I was like, my first my first reaction was like, oh, wow, this is smoky too. But then I realized it's just picking up from the mezcal, yeah. but it's very, very good. It's got a lot of butterscotch on the nose. Yeah, uh, Malt whiskey in, in the U.S. Um, is kind of in a, in a medium sort of transitional space right now. They just allowed for single malt whiskey to be its own thing. Mm. Previously, a malt whiskey, which is this one, um, you know, type class malt whiskey, in quotes, um, had to be aged in a new charred oak barrel. That was cooperage mm-hmm. protection. It's going way back. So it does have more bourbon nose than like your Scotch or your Irish style. Yeah. But it finishes very Irish. It has that brassy sort of dry finish on the back end. But Maybe 12 months. Um, <clears throat> do you have, have you been approached by people in the years to make for them? We've been approached to make a few like niche products. I think generally once we talk to people, they realize we just don't have the bandwidth, the, the, the production output to supply what they're, what they're looking for. We always say yes to like the conversation as long as it's like, like a real conversation. Um, we get a lot more approaches from folks who want to supply us. Mm. Um, so right now there is bulk supply of corn based spirits, mm. whey based spirits, the whole, um, the whey waste, uh, spirits mm. are, uh, shockingly inexpensive. Mm. Um, and they'll let someone kind of jump in with no experience and just say, okay, I want to, I'm going to mix whey spirits with vanilla extract. And I'm going to make a vanilla vodka and they can be on the market as a non-distiller producer, like very quickly. Mm. Um, they'll make pretty good money on it. It's just not the same story. It's not the same, yeah. it's not the same sort of partnership with the land, you right. know, and, and with the area that we have. Um, we, 
used to be a little more aggressive. I'd say we're, we're still pretty aggressive. Like we have the, or we have shirts and bumper stickers that say death to false whiskey. <laughs> and that has a little less to do with bulk sourcing and more to do with just tricking the customer. Yeah. So you've got a lot of high end stuff out there and low end stuff out there, especially in aged whiskey markets that are all from the same place. Yeah. And, and have been the whole time, you know, and it's all marketing. You know, sometimes it's the age, sometimes it's the blend. Um, what's weird is we'll get people who question, like, our, our terroir all the way through. Like, oh, where's the malt coming from? Where's this from? And then they'll be like, well, I like bourbon X. I won't even say. And I'm like, <laughs> that's a blended bourbon. They're like, oh, well, they're masters of blending. It's like, <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's tricky in that I know enough with labeling now that I can pick up on your bottle and tell you, hmm. like, the story. Just based off what I can read, yeah, and say okay. So if it says produced by, they're not distilling. If it says mm. uh, distilled by, and it's like a vodka that's like nine times, <laughs> they bought eight times distilled vodka and they distilled it. They ran it through a pot still, probably ruined its its overall <laughs> proof on the second on the, on the ninth pass. But they did, you know, and and they can say okay, well we at least we distilled it. It was bought spirits, but they ran it through a still, yeah. So nine times. Um, if it says bottled by, if it says, you know, blended and bottled by, if it says distilled by, you know, generally, with the exception of like that ninth, <laughs> the ninth distillation vodka, um, it's typically made by that, by mm. that operator. Um, mm. I get a little bit um, confused occasionally in, in the certain state law stuff, but generally for the most part, you can tell what, what, every, what everybody's. Uh, at least sourcing, hmm. uh, or at least part of their story is just based on what you can read off the label. Uh, also, with like age statements, things like that. Yeah. Um, someone says that it's it's distilled, or not sweet. It says uh, produced and bottled by, and it's got a two year age statement, right? Um, they just bought they just bought immature or MGP, you know, at yeah. that point. It's going to tell you something about how that bourbon is going to taste if it's a bourbon. Uh, it's going to tell you a lot about like what is their you know, priorities yeah. as a brand, hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, because there's I think is it I think is it is it Penelope yeah it's Penelope, um, uh, Nick was telling me like he went down there to tour their facility and it's you know in Newark and yep. all the barrels are in shipping containers and you know yeah. I don't think they're they're distilling their own right they're buying it, uh, buying their juice and then just barreling it aging it. I mean, MGP as an example makes good overall product. Yeah. In terms of like its its uh, availability, it's you know, I I don't necessarily um, I don't have experience with with you know the exact samples themselves, but um, in terms of like what they have for low wines, wheat product, their 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 raw bourbon, the white dog bourbon that they'll sell you, generally everything is fine. But it's also very large batch, macro produced. It's not gonna if you're looking for like I'm gonna take some stuff and put it away in one barrel and have a single barrel release, you're not gonna have any single barrel notes. Right. It's gonna taste like it came off a continuous column still in Indiana. It's gonna be very um with unless unless they're doing like contract for someone who wants something really unusual. Yeah. If it's just out of their general stock, it's gonna be fairly dull right. in terms of like its overall palate. It's gonna be fine. It's gonna be bourbon, it's gonna be whiskey. It'll yeah. be all right. Everyone uses the same cooperage down there too, which is also kind of uh, interesting to me that you got the primary producer of the juice putting it in almost all the same barrels to then send it out to a thousand brands. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. And and you've got to differentiate them from each other, and they're yeah. almost all in the same book. Right. You know. So like, if you're in the we're not in Southern, uh, but if you're in the Southern book and you go through the bourbons, 
probably half of them are all yeah of the same lineage. Yeah. Right? They're in the family. They're at least in the same family tree. Right. In terms of where it all started. Yeah, it is really wild to think about the spirits industry and how much is controlled by and owned by so few, you yes. know. I mean, it's kind of like the world, you know, it's like the, you know, the wealth in the world, you know, like 26 26 individuals have 50% or whatever it is, 51% of the world's wealth, you know. Yep. And it's kind of the same thing in the distilling world. There's like seven massive companies that own 80% of the commercial space. And their and their ability to put their like leverage on the neck yeah, is, right. is is unlimited. Oh yeah. It's just a matter of kind of like agreement to coexist. Yeah. That's kind of what's allowed craft to get to this point. Um they're I mean they definitely enter the craft space um in in odd ways, but I don't know of any examples where like Pernod Ricard or um Sazerac has like organically reached into the craft space. Right. They'll buy brands. Yeah. I think Pernod Ricard did an interesting one in New York. They had the Our Vodka. That was unusual. That was different. They reached out to us to do some projects. We might still do something with them. But that's kind of like their um, sort of, they'll, they'll, they'll make sort of uh, outreaches of, you know, say, let's do something. Yeah. You know, it's not a big deal. Um, because in the end, it's, it's, it's kind of everyone is looking to see what's the next thing. Yeah. And having a multi, you know, uh, billion dollar global enterprise is great if you but it doesn't mean anything if you don't see like canned cocktails coming. Right. You know, and and they all kind of follow each other and kind of trip over each other in their own space. And we kind mm. of stay on the outside, you know, looking around saying, okay, is there a window to even do this? No, it just doesn't make sense. You know, I don't, I don't, let them fight over canned cocktails. Yeah. And we'll continue to just be this other story. Yeah. What's the, um, I mean, I know from unlike, and I've, I've talked to Nick about this a little bit and I know this fairly well on the brewery side. Um, I mean, distribution is it as big of a pain in the ass for distillers for yourself as it is for some of these breweries. I can't speak to how, uh, like the beer world works yeah. in terms of like, what are the expectations on them? It sucks. I can tell you. I know it sucks, <laughs> but I mean, like, um, do we have good relationships with distill with distribution? We do, but it's always um, we're always we're always looking for more from each other, mm -hmm. and we always mm -hmm. want to see more uh, accounts. We want to see more follow ups. Uh, they want us to do more tastings and road work, and so it's kind of like you know if we can meet each other in the middle and 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 just do a little bit extra both ways, it works out pretty well. Mm. Um, we've had. Some distributor relationships that are not good, they're over now. Um, were they um, were they predatory? No. Were they hmm. not really aware of like our actual scale, yeah. you know, and, and and what we were hoping for out of them? Did we did we have the same goals in mind? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they were predatory. Yeah. Um, hmm. we have McCraith beverage, you know, for Eucharome area, and they do very well for certain areas. Um, but we're always throughout all the rest of the areas going, oh, how come we're not here? How come we're not there? And you can call them up and say, oh, I want to be in this space and that space. And they say, oh, well, give us the time. Let's, let's go do some road work, you know? And, hmm. and, you know, hopefully, you know, we can put that sort of patchwork to work, you yeah. know, to the benefit of the customer. Yeah. Because if we don't, people, hmm. things like direct to consumer keep getting discussed. Yeah. And that distributors don't love that. Right. Liquor stores don't love that. Um, I think in our case, 
were kind of a, a as a farm distillery, we were just in Albany doing direct consumer lobbying, and um, we don't have the relationships that would end up equaling like a blacklist because we just don't have the demand. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. But other places could. You know, if someone mm-hmm. was a bigger operator, and let's say. Um, uh, a regional operator, right? Let's say 10 states of distribution, for example, right? And then all of a sudden, New York is direct to consumer available and they start putting out maybe like a thousand bottles a, week, uh, a year. It's not that much. A thousand bottles, you know, talking three a day shipments out from your operation, it gets you statewide in terms of exposure. It's only good for your brand. Yeah. But what do you mean by direct consumer? Like you can't sell on your website? Cannot sell on your website, cannot ship to consumers. Are you serious? Cannot. Illegal by state law. And we're, we're working our way towards that. Because it seems weird, right? Because you get probably some liquor in the mail. Okay, I mean, I don't want to rat out you, but liquor does occasionally show up in people's mailboxes. So just you can't. It all depends on state law. Right now, it's not, I can't say for certain, but there are certain states with reciprocity. D.C. and Kentucky can ship out to other certain states. But in terms of like New York's willingness to accept yeah. shipments in, I want to say it's not legal yet. I mean, because, I mean, you know, Pascal's has an online thing. They can ship to a few different states. Right. So is it a different liquor store versus distillery? Yes, totally gotcha. different. Okay. And they've got some rights to deliver, right? They've, they've, they've essentially, it's an extension of their delivery rights Yeah. to to then just meet the consumer further right. out. Um, That's fucking dumb. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and at the same time, like, the Independent Liquor Store uh, Owners Association is very powerful. And they're also our partners. Yeah. You know, I don't, we don't want to upset, but we won't be there. Not, not maybe not us, but like other distilleries will not be in existence providing that sort of greater diaspora of, of New York options if you don't let them ship to the people who aren't nearby. Yeah. Now it's probably a different story. Maybe when it's like a, like, um, Chad who, you know, just started Chad Meigs, yep. um, you know, he just started beer, dist- beer distribution company. Actually, we're meeting with him tomorrow, which I'm going to talk to you about off air. Mm-hmm. Um, and no offense, Chad, if you're listening to this, I would never buy beer from his comp from his website because, um, Hey, there's just so much beer that exists out there that it's probably today that it's probably rare. I could think of two beers that I would pay to have shipped to me it's a lot of market redundancy right yeah and so i'm not going to pay for the shipping from that and it's not going to be cost effective for him to ever do free shipping right it's like when i owned i started a coffee company right yeah good buddy coffee i bought my beans from peaks already roasted i said your mountain climber's great i'll just take that and i'll take your decaf and your dark roast wonderful and it was cheap you know it was like 350 a pound or whatever it was Labels, bags, the thing that I quickly realized was it's a stupid idea to do that business because you only make your money in that side on wholesale. Right. If you're trying to retail, you know, by the time somebody buys your $16 bag of coffee, they're not going to pay the eight bucks for shipping. Right. So. So unless you've got distribution ready to go. Right. It's the same story for breaking brands in in this business. Yeah. and, And beverage across the board. Um. What we have in terms of like um, our product versus like a, a beer equivalent, um, yeah, it's one. It's a little more compact. Right. Doesn't weigh quite so much. But also, like people see our stuff as they travel. Yeah, and we do the state fair, and we do a lot of online promotional stuff. Maybe not enough, but but people are aware of us statewide, and we hear it all the time. With like, when are you going to be in Saratoga? When are you going to yeah. be 
here and there. Hmm. And they like the story enough that the fact that they could also get something out of Lake George yeah. that's you know, of a similar sort of uh, origin story, um, that's good with them. Yeah. They'll get that too. But they also want to get ours. They want to collect that as well, too. Right. Um, Chad's in an interesting spot in terms of, like, he's got that weird license. I know. Where he's, like, distributor slash shipping. We were just talking with people in the with the guild meeting, and people were like, we just don't know how it works. And I was like, nobody knows. This this, <laughs> this mystery. How did he do this? And it's like, it's just a combined license, I guess. I don't know. It's been interesting to, to watch sort of craft beverage via our distributor. Our distributors, I should say. Um, and how difficult mm -hmm. it can be to break certain stuff in, yeah. even when it's like slam dunk stuff and it should just be a natural thing. And sometimes it's the venue, sometimes it's you know the account, sometimes it's the, the salesperson, whatever. But it seems like it is a constant struggle for anyone yeah. in the, with, your, with your distributor. So I would say it's not unique to anyone. No. And taking out a distributorship to me sounds exhausting <laughs> it sounds we talk about it like because we can we can co-distribute yeah. in in spirits and and guys a little i suppose we could do it across other farm licenses too i think and people say what do oh, you want to let's co-distribute let's co-distribute and if i'm a brand owner like i'm gonna sell my stuff yeah you know and this is really not a perfect space for it i don't mm. know it's a real mess and everyone who comes up with a really good idea i'm not saying this is a bad idea right it's just they all burn out yeah. or they realize very quickly that they cannot put the road miles on and still make the money. Yeah. So unless you've got something where you're like, I'm already taking right. products elsewhere. I got to turn the truck back, you know, um, if you got vehicles on the road already. That's a huge boon. Yeah. Um, I think, I think, I think re the... remarkable liquids is maybe still in operation. And we would, we were, we were carrying beer at our place and we call them mm -hmm. up and they'd be like, you're, you're X miles beyond our delivery. Area. And I was like, what's your delivery? They're like five miles from from the throughway, basically. It was like, oh good. Like they're really convenient. I mean, and and we know that like like you can be terrible and demand that a distributor show up if you want to, but yeah. it ruins your relationship. Um huh. and it just kind of left it alone. So like we don't carry beer at our place anymore. Yeah. It's too hard to get it out there. Yeah. Unless we like like uh reach out direct and say, okay. Uh, go to the Critzes and say we want to carry some stuff. We would do that. We've done that, you right? Know? Um, with the with like the relationships we already have, um, but very quickly we we realized that mm. um, the redundancy is real. Yeah, and and unless you've got something that is breaking the market open, or the, or is the price point is amazing, yeah, it just doesn't do right do a whole lot beyond certain settings. Yeah, like there's great opportunity for beer in cans in certain settings, provided that the the producer can supply enough of it. Right. You know, and you look at things like the Mets games and you yeah. know what I mean? Uh, anyone who's gotten to deal with the amphitheater, you know, they all love them when they get them. Right. It's just then like, oh man, I don't know if this is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what I want. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I thought out of habits this summer, I thought like, okay, there's like what craft beer is there? Um, and uh, what craft beer is there in Baldwinsville? There's WT, sure, right. yep. you know, and they're making it, but there really isn't another place that like does you know, like where you can go buy a variety of craft beer. So I was like, we're gonna become that. Yep. We've got I've got a stand up fridge, retail, you know, I've got you know eight shelves in there. We're gonna carry as much of a variety of canned beer as we can. 
from every, like, it was like, I'll bring Lake Placid in and I'll, you know, all these different places. And it did absolute dog shit. Beer yep. was like, no one gave a shit about it. Yep. I was, you know, we were trying to sell like four packs, six packs to go. No one cared about it. Now, maybe it's time. Maybe people just need, you know, it the, needs a couple of years. I but. think the, like the window on the 16 ounce can four pack, right, was like 2017 to 2019. Where you could you could just kind of slap anything together, yeah, with some creative art, yeah, and it would do pretty good. I think you I think you see some some uh, um, movement into into retail, yeah, with it, and then it just became a lot, and everyone started saying, no, "I'm going to can, we're going to can," and then it became uh, less and less artistic, yeah. and you know, and more about like, well, <clears throat> we we're going to kind of almost go back to the old ways of a of a label that we we hand write, and the moment you start doing that. People's interest starts to change. Yeah. Especially in the second location. Yeah. One thing to have a hand labeled uh, growler poured by the brewer mm. out of their place. Right. Go, Perfect. Yeah. Something else to be like, oh, it's a it's Sharpie written <laughs> on a on a ball can. Yeah. At a you know, at a at a cidery. You know what I mean? Right. I don't know. Like people's expectations in terms of what craft means, they will they will excuse a lot of Mm. semi-professionalism as long as the story's good yeah the moment it hits the store shelf it has to be perfect fuck that's good man that's really good well our maple whiskey right early on we didn't we didn't filter it like we should yeah well, like or i should say like we do now i actually liked it before we would filter the spirit and then we'd add the maple syrup for the, this is just an addition of pure maple syrup now maple syrup will fall out of solution but it makes sugar crystals it makes mineral content it looks cool to me. Yeah. But I'm also like, I like spirits nerd stuff. I like, I don't mind seeing some, some uh, barrel char or yeah. uh, uh, sugars falling out of solution or oils falling out of solution. Like I, I, to me that says it's real, but if it's on a shelf and it's not perfectly amber and free of debris, the presumption is that you've, 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 you're poisoning people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like literally people are going, that's not perfect. Yeah. And the expectations of perfection are extremely, extremely high right now. As in as much as people don't want to miss out, they also want the absolute best all the time. Yeah, and it, and it has to visually check a box as mm. much as it checks the flavor. Hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah, because like we would get at Abbott's, you know, they make their own hard cider, and uh, I mean, I would get so many people coming through just wanting that, wanting the hard cider, which you know, frankly, isn't that great, and. Um, but people just loved it. They were like, "This is the best thing I've ever had before." I'm like, eh, "Are you sure about that?" Yeah, uh, it's fine. But in the moment, right? Yeah. But uh, that was the thing that they wanted. They wanted hard cider because they could see the apple trees out back, and yes. they knew that it was, yeah. you know, and they wanted the growlers, and they didn't care. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. It's it really is a you know it's um, look look at like like the Italian bakery, right? I saw your Columbus yeah. bread, right? From the bakery. Amazing. It's still good bread. I'm not right. gonna I'm never gonna talk bad on them. Yeah. But if you were in like a big M into writer, right, and you saw the Columbus bakery bread, you'd be like, mm, Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how it got here. You know what I mean? And that's not even saying anything bad about that store either. Yeah. But you're saying like it's not the you know there's a better scenario. You For sure. know the perfect scenario. Yeah. And that's not it. Yeah. There's definitely, I mean, one of the things that we're really fortunate about here in central New York is there are places like yourself, like Colum like I was at Columbus Bread this morning at eight a.m. Yeah, right when they opened, and you know 
you can't it, even see through the window because of the steam. And it's and, an experience. Yeah. And and so much of, I mean, people fight over like what does craft mean in, in every form. People say, oh, I, I make craft coffee. I make, you know, craft, uh, you know, cheese or I'm making, you know, craft baked goods. I think what it means is it's it's beyond the product itself to an experience. Yeah. It's experiential where you can say, okay, it was made by this person, either the person I met or the person whose name and signature is on the label or the card that they stuck inside that says, thanks for buying my stuff. Right. Please visit my website, whatever. I think that's the big difference. And there are products that we don't think of as traditional craft because they didn't, you know, market themselves with minimalist font and, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and, and get a modern, <laughs> you know, marketing thing the other that are the definition of craft. Like, the old school Italian bakery yeah. or the old school Italian deli, that to me is craft. I mean, because it takes generational knowledge. Right. You can't just, you can't, you can definitely just jump into it, but you're learning at the same time yeah. that you're doing. You know? Yeah. I mean, me, you know, Ponchitos, I think is good. Mm-hmm. I've learned at Ponchitos over the, like over last year that you have to know how to order. Cause you know, if you've been in there before. I have to admit, I've never had it. So they're right down the street. Yeah. Um, but it's like a local Moe's. Like you go in there, it's yeah. a burrito, it's tacos, what do you want? And they put it in there. Yeah. If you don't know what the fuck you're ordering or what you want in there, it's going to taste like shit. I learned last year to go down there and tell Michael, hey, whatever you eat, that's what I want. Yeah. And then it's amazing. But I had the dad on the podcast a couple months ago and learning the story that he grew up in a like three, four generation bakery here in Syracuse. Yeah. And that they had taken on, they had their kids, but then they had adopted, or through foster care, so many kids. The story gets real. That he opened the restaurant so that way his kids would ha- be able to have jobs. Yeah. And that he got some of these recipes from a trip to Mexico. I'm like, I'm sold on Ponchitos. All stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm, in, I'm going to Ponchitos now every chance that I can. Yeah. So there is that aspect. I feel, and I've been saying it for the past couple of weeks on the podcast, when I first, you know, seven, eight years ago, we started Eat Local New York. And even just before COVID, it felt like there was more of an intentional focus on that quality. You know, the early days of the pandemic, it was like, hey, what can I get that's here in the backyard? Local one. Right. Lo- local was the thing. We've lost that, I think. It's weird. Like, there are still people who shop local intentionally. That's, that is a, a, Big, big majority of our of our consumers, folks who are like saying, "I want, I want this because it's local. I like it. Yeah, I, it, I, I, I enjoy it. But also, I like that it's also from here too. We're seeing a little bit of a turn. Yeah, it's starting market wise. People are starting to look more for quality. Sorry, correction, quantity. Yeah, um, looking for deals. Um, for the first time in a long time, we're getting people who are debating price mm. because they're not sure if it's if it's you know, something that they can invest. They'll still buy a lot of local goods, but there's something about like the $42 bourbon that, or the $33 gin or whatever that, that makes them go, do I, do I want local enough? Yeah. You know, for this particular experience. And then some folks don't care at all. Right. Like we still have tons of folks who are just like, you make it awesome. I liked it. Yeah. Give me a bottle. Give me two, whatever it is. Um, but there's a little bit more debate over, um, I think people still want to buy local. But I think they're starting to more consider the global market. Yeah. And they're also expecting shipping. Again, going yeah. back to DTC, people expect it to come to them. 
Right. And that's the opposite of local in terms of like, yeah. you know, the, <laughs> the willingness to pay for shipping from anywhere. Uh, so we get a lot of, we get a lot of folks who reach out and they're like, oh, your, your products look interesting. I've never heard of them before. Can you ship to me and such and such? And it's like, Oh, that's neat. That's cool. But like in my head, I was like, you could also just, you know, there's local stuff in your area too. You know right. what I mean? They're just going more collecting. Yeah. And I still want their business. Right. You know, I, I still, I'm so happy that we got their attention, but people are just sort of on the internet yeah. looking through going, Oh, cool. Neat website. You know, oh, I like the TikTok. You know what I mean? That's cool. <laughs> and we could probably do more of that stuff. And you, what would happen, right? So let's say we get a TikTok. Theoretically, I was thinking about this a little bit with my wife. That it, <laughs> you get 150,000 likes out of like a million of views, right? And people go, I want your stuff. You can't. Yeah, so, you're fucked. Yeah. You can't get it. You can't. I mean, yeah. we could try to leverage it in. By the time we could leverage it into a multi-state deal, yeah. one, we don't have enough. And, and two, like the moment would be over. Right. Well, I will say, I mean, when it goes talk about TikTok specifically, I mean, Nicole, that's one of the reasons why I hired her was, you know, because she gets that, you know, first of all, I didn't have time to do it, to sit there and pump out the video content that we've been putting out over the last month. Um, And second of all, she understands that stuff more than I do in terms of like how to edit those quick videos. But when we were starting 3-1 Fried, I was making videos of like, Hey, we're, oh, I'm opening up my first restaurant, and today, like, here's the list of things I have to do to open, and today I have to figure out takeout containers. So I'm going to take this container and that container. I'm going to make a sandwich and tater tots, leave it in there for 15 minutes, open it up, and see which one the food tastes better out of. Sure. Those videos were getting, like, 100,000 views yeah. on TikTok, and people kept saying, I wish you were in St. Louis. I wish you were here. I wish you were there. So that just taught me really quickly I need to have, like, if I'm going to do that stuff for a brand again, yeah. I need to have T-shirts and stickers and hats and all this stuff yeah. on my website ready for them to buy to make money off of. I think about, like, we are able to open enter that space, but I think we'd have to really push the location. Yeah. And say, this is where you're going to come to. Right. You know, you're not far. You're in New York City or wherever. Yeah. You get enough views. You're going to get some people who are in here. You get the algorithm, we'll, we'll turn it down to where we got... Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, New York. We'll, we'll get seen. And we got to push it as, this is your next destination. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and get people to come to us. Because that is really the only way it works out. Yeah. Versus saying, I'm in, you know, northern New York, and I like this thing. How can I get it? And it's yeah. like, you got a four-hour drive. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I had just had Eddie Brennan on the podcast, from, yeah. and it was really interesting just thinking about there, how massive they are. Um, and, and yeah, so, well, thanks, man. Hey, thank you. I had a great time talking. Yeah, it's great. Uh, for everybody who's listening, Old Home Distillers, uh, is it Distillers? Old Home Distillers, yeah. Distillers. And, uh, uh, Old Home Distillers, check them out, regional market every Saturday. Yeah, we also do, uh, Oneida County public market every other Saturday through the winter. And when we get into the summer, we're at Hamilton and Casanova markets as well. And then stores and restaurants and bars all throughout yeah. Central New York. So yeah. if you're a restaurant that's listening uh, or liquor store, who's your distributor? Uh, if you're in this area, Onondaga Beverage. If you're over Utica, Rome area, I'm at Craith Beverage. Or you can also reach out direct to us and we'll get you lined up uh, for areas outside that space. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>